6: Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: I think for all the problems we have in the world, the solution still lies in our children and how, what tools we give them and how we teach them to communicate with the world.
5: This is Ziggy Marley. I really love the guy because the man has heart.
8: We approach them with respect and approach them with the knowledge that if we instill something in them and it solidifies in them, then that is what they're gonna put out there. So if we treat the children them as a part of the process of making this world a better place, you know.
5: Ziggy believes that treating kids with respect is the backbone of making the world a better place. Honestly, that reminds me of Rafi. It's something Ziggy inherited from his father, Bob Marley.
8: My father had a lot of kids around. We had just children, even not his children. I mean, we can learn a lot just by observing children.
5: Recently, in the middle of the pandemic and Black Lives Matter protests, Ziggy turned to his own kids for inspiration.
8: I'm feeling emotions about what's going on in the society. Um, racial injustice and, you know, the COVID and the planet. And those things inspire me to speak out and speak out in music. But then... My five-year-old son, you know, he comes around with his Goo Goo Gaga thing. And he's like, Goo Goo Gaga, Goo Gaga. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm writing a song called Goo Gaga now.
5: <laughs> That's awesome. Ziggy emerged with a new kids' album called More Family Time. And yes, there's a song called Goo Goo Gaga. He's one of the few singers I know who can successfully cross from adult music into kids' songs and back again.
8: Yeah, someone said that to me, like, oh, yo, how you just pivot, how you just go from one to the other so seamlessly. You know, unless you want to be just with blinders on, none of us really are set in one way. So the duality of myself, I can sing songs like your pain is mine, but I also have a childlike part of me that wants to express itself too. And so I free that part of me without worrying about ego or what people might think. It gives me so much space to imagine. Yeah, I mean, things would be pretty miserable without that childlike inspiration. It would be, yeah. Oh, yeah, I need need that childlike vibes. you know? (laughs) It it, it makes me laugh, it makes me have fun, it it makes me be free, yeah.
5: (laughs) I can feel it when I'm playing with my daughter, Sunny. I make goofy faces to make her laugh, and it's totally okay. Rafi has always preached that we should make space for play in our lives— but somewhere along the way, even Raffi forgot to have fun. He abandoned his playful side. That urge to be silly doesn't die because we get older. We just get good at ignoring it. So why do we value playfulness in children and then beat it out of ourselves when we become adults? I'm Chris Garcia, and this is Finding Rafi a 10-part series from iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch about the life, philosophy, and the work of Rafi, the man behind the music. Today on our show, Rafi gets his groove back. In 1992, Rafi decided he wanted to stage a comeback. He hadn't played to a young audience in four years, and he was coming off a pretty rough period in his life. You'll remember that he and his wife, Deb, had split up, and Evergreen Everblue, his Ecology album aimed at teens and adults, was pretty much a bust. So Rafi goes back on tour, and after a few months, he decides to go
1: big. Thank you very much, and hello, everyone! (laughs) I've waited a long time for this, to be here with you on Broadway. Now,
5: Playing on Broadway is huge. Raffi sold out six performances, but you could feel his serious side battling it out with his playful side. Sure, Raffi sang some old favorites like Baby Beluga, but he followed it up with descriptions of whales dying from toxic pollution. Then to lighten the mood, he did impersonations of Bob Dylan and Elvis.
1: You're just a little white whale on the go. Yeah! Beluga babe, baby beluga.
5: This was a new Raffi. He ditched the Hawaiian shirt and moccasins for a dresser and a tie. And in between songs, he incorporated a series of stage gags. And that's when Rafi hit on something really big. You know, now what? Picture this, Raffi gets a delivery on stage. It's a shopping bag.
1: Oh, it says here, organically grown bananas.
5: Rafi reaches inside and pulls out a banana.
1: Hello? It's a banana phone. A phone with a peel. Here's a family that looks like it could use a bananular phone. (laughs)
5: There's so many reasons that I love this. As a comedian, I appreciate the misdirect. It's an all-time classic bit. There's Got Your Nose, Pull My Finger, and Using a Random Object as a Phone. It's this corny stage joke that plants the seeds for one of Rafi's greatest hits.
7: One he hasn't even written yet. So how many people does this happen to... you? You get a phone call at 9 in the morning, and Rafi says, OK, listen, I got this thing. I picked up my guitar, and I went... Bum, bum. Ring, 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 ring. Banana phone. Musician Michael Krieber ring, toured ring, with Rafi ring, during ring, this period. And he says, you know, what do you think? I, mean, I don't even know if it's worth anything or whatever. And I go, I'm coming right over. Hold that thought. You know, because it was Brilliant. So I drove across town in my Volkswagen bus and uh, we sat there for a full day and wrote Bananaphone basically in a day on his kitchen table.
1: I never thought Bananaphone would become a most popular Rashi song. It's the best, beats the rest, cellular, modular, interactive, modular,
7: ring, ring ring sure a lot of the kids they are going to listen to Bananaphone and they won't hear all the puns we put in there. Those are for adults, but it doesn't really matter. The whole the, the song is fun no matter who listens to it. I mean that's all we did. We just created puns for the whole song.
1: Oh yeah. My cellular annular phone.
7: That playfulness was good for us because we had fun writing it and performing it.
1: It's a phone with appeal.
7: And we do feel that those messages are eternal. You
1: can have your phone and eat it too. Kids
7: need to know that this—it's okay. They need permission to play, you know, in their world, and adults too. <laughs> we need that too.
5: Banana phone is the moment that Rafi puts kids back in the
1: center of it all. Using a banana as an imaginary phone is a wonderful form of pretend play. And then making a song about it, then the play becomes musical. It becomes a playful, musical experience for the young child. You can feel the same energy from his first album,
5: Singable Songs, when he was just having fun and not caring about what people thought. Rafi said he felt light and playful again. These were some of his favorite concerts ever. His parents, Ardo and Lucy, noticed a change in Rafi, too. There was something in his voice that moved them both. In his autobiography, Rafi wrote that his ailing father listened to the album every day, doing his exercises to the music. And Lucy danced to it with a family dog. Rafi's return to playfulness was the key to his big comeback. The puns and basic silliness of Bananaphone allowed him to embrace the kid-like side of himself that he'd forgotten. But how do the rest of us do that? Can we change something so ingrained in our society? Do we even know how?
9: I think so many of us have a hard time going back to these, like, playful, happy attitudes. We're working 9 to 5 and we're worried about our kids when to get dinner on the table and rent is due and so on. And I think there's just this idea that that's silly stuff. You know, that's the stuff you give up, you know, once you get a real adult job.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway.
10: Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday.
6: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip.
9: You know, I think when we, you know, forego playfulness, we do it at our own cost.
0: Dr.
5: Lori Santos is a professor of psychology at Yale University and the host of the Happiness Lab podcast. She teaches one of Yale's most popular courses. It's known as the Happiness Class.
9: The science shows we'd be more productive at work if we engaged in more playful practices. We'd end up being like more interesting to friends. We'd have hobbies and things to talk about with people. So it can increase our social connection, which also can increase our well-being. Every available study of happy people suggests that happy people are more social, right? They prioritize time with their friends and family members, and they really try to connect with the people around them.
5: It's funny. The first song on Rafi's first album, Singable Songs for the Very Young, is... The more we get together, the happier we'll be.
9: It's like straight out of the positive psychology. You know, it could be a title of a like journal paper in the field of positive psychology.
1: The more we get together, together, together. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. Because your friends are my friends, and my friends are your friends. The more we get together, the happier we'll be.
5: Lori isn't just a professor at Yale. She also lives on campus. She's a head of college, which means she's kind of like a dorm mom. Lori eats her meals with students, and she's there to experience the ups and downs of college life.
9: When I took on that new role, I was expecting college to be, you know, fun and parties. What I wasn't expecting to see was the mental health crisis up close and personal. with so many students reporting that they felt depressed and anxious. And even ones that weren't, you know, having a, like, diagnosed mental health condition were still just stressed and kind of fast-forwarding life. You know, I'd ask students, like, how's it going? I'd be like, oh, if I can just fast-forward to midterms or if I can just get, like, to the weekend. And it's like, you only get four years, you know, or five years of college, right? You know, if you're seven, lucky. Seven. Seven right? for some seven of <laughs> You only get seven years of college. You know, it just felt so sad that they were kind of watching them fast forward through. And so my interest in the happiness stuff came out of wanting to teach my students some better strategies, right? I I didn't like seeing them so depressed and anxious. And I really wanted to help And I realized, you know, this is such a universal problem where we feel like we're not doing it well. And if you're a parent, you know, it becomes an even worse universal problem because you're thinking not just about your own happiness, but what you can do to ensure that your kids are happy, too.
5: How do we get this back as adults if we become unhappier as we age?
9: Yeah, I think, you know, this is actually something that I think about a lot. And in fact, that I've been working on a lot because, you know, I sometimes pontificate and give all this advice about happiness that I'm not necessarily following myself. And one thing I realize often causes me not to have fun is that I'm just too hard on myself. Right. It's hard for me to take a playful attitude because I'm just so scared I'm not going to be perfect or mess up. Or, you know, sometimes fun things require being a beginner, you know, learning some new game or some new skill can be fun. But not if you're like, I have to be perfect. Oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. Like, how am I not perfect? And so I think the first step to dealing with that is to not worry about other people because they're not usually as bad as you are judging yourself anyway. It's to work on your own self-compassion.
5: You know, that really resonates with me as a stand-up comedian because everything I do is based on people's reactions. But it's never as terrible as the reaction I have afterwards. Like after a set, I-, I would think I was like, oh my gosh, I bombed. People will go, hey, that was really great. They'll sincerely say it was great, but inside I'm like, "Ugh, that was terrible. Um, well, why, why am I doing this, doctor? <laughs> no, why do I do this to myself? Why did I choose... To uh, risk public humiliation as a career.
9: (laughs) (laughs) You know, the theme of so many of these things in this happiness field is that our minds lie to us. We think you're being so hard on yourself because it's going to make you better. You know, if you're not harsh on yourself, if you give yourself the benefit of the doubt, you're just not going to be a good comedian. Right. We think we have to be this, you know, mean inner drill sergeant to ourselves to get anything done, to be good at anything. But again, this is a spot where if you look at the scientific literature, it shows that our intuition here is just wrong. Researchers in the field of self-compassion actually looked at uh, veterans from Afghanistan and taught them, you know, ways of being more self-compassionate. And what they found is that these veterans who experience self-compassion are less likely to develop something like PTSD. You know, they're less likely to be anxious after war.
5: So interesting. My uh, my parents have gone through a lot of trauma, you know, especially my mom and they've been through so much together. You know, my dad was a political prisoner. He had some mental health issues. The last 10 years of his life, he had Alzheimer's disease until he finally passed away about 4 years ago. And my mom is so resilient. She could still find humor in any situation. Uh, we're at the funeral home after my dad dies. And we're sad. And my mom asked the person there if they offer a senior discount. And we just all start laughing. And she's always she's the queen of gallows humor. What is it about uh, finding humor or laughter in the darkest moments?
9: Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's just a way of kind of shifting your perspective. And this is something, you know, that so much of the research shows. It's also something that I think a lot of really very wise ancient traditions showed us, too. You know, the Buddhists had this wonderful uh, parable that they call the Parable of the Second Arrow. The way it goes is that Buddha asks his disciples, you know, if a guy's walking down the street and he gets shot with an arrow, is that bad? disciples say, yeah, it sucks to get shot with an arrow. And Buddha asks, you know, is it worse to get shot with a second arrow? You imagine like, you know, arrow number two comes and strikes you again. Is that worse? People say, yeah, that, you know, sucks twice as much to get struck with two arrows. And Buddha says, you know, the first arrow is life. That's your circumstances. That's what they call dukkha. That's suffering. You can't avoid that, right? That's the, you get Alzheimer's, you get deaths in life, you have bad circumstances. The second arrow is your reaction to it. And Buddha says, you know, the second arrow is the most painful one because it's shot by ourselves. Like whenever we get hit with the second arrow, it's us reacting in a bad way. And it's worth remembering that we can always uh, control our second arrow. You know, this kind of advice for me has been really powerful because there's so many times in our life when our misery is caused by us.
5: Listening to Lori, it explained so much about my mom, and it made me wonder about Rafi, too. He's also always found his way back to a playful place, even if it wasn't nurtured in his childhood.
1: No one had to encourage it, (laughs) it was just there as it is in all children. You know, I think maybe the more interesting question is who discouraged it? Let's put it this way. There were many adults in my life as, as a child uh, who didn't quite appreciate how the need for play was so strong within me as a, as a child. But that's a long, long conversation. It's, it's not easy to put it into a, you know, a short answer. Um, I don't know what else to say at the moment.
0: Hey, Tony, how's
4: it going? It's going well. Gosh, you sound so good, and I do not sound good, I don't think. No, you should
5: hear it from this vantage point. It sounds great.
4: Okay, good. Good. (laughs) Good. I I need a lot of affirmation, constant affirmation. So
5: so do I, actually.
4: Uh, But
5: uh, thank you so much for talking to me this morning and taking the time. uh, There are few people who get paid to be playful and do it with such fun abandon like Tony Hale. You probably know Tony as Buster Bluth from Arrested Development and Gary Walsh on Veep. In real life, he's a dad to his teenage daughter, Loy. I wanted to talk to Tony because it's his job to be America's man-child. So he's gotta be the guy who knows how to keep that kid-like feeling alive into adulthood. It's so funny because there's such a playful side in the characters that you've played. And um, I'm wondering if that's, if that's just who you are. Are you uh, like a, mm. Where does that come from?
4: Um, I think, yeah. I mean, I I will say like Buster and Gary, there's a, I think there's an anxiety through line. When I was a kid, I was very anxious. I was an asthmatic kid and I had a lot of anxiety around that. And I think I was, when I was a kid, I just wanted everybody to like me and a lot of people pleasing stuff. And I had panic attacks when I was a kid. And so even though that sucked walking through that as a kid, it's been it is nice to kind of bring it into your work. Like I know what, I know what a panic attack feels like. I know, I know what severe anxiety can, how that can manifest. And so it's nice to kind of have that history, even though it's not something that I struggle with as much as I used to. I
5: really kind of relate to this anxiety, you know, and I am so cautious of it. And I really don't want to like, pass it down to my daughter you know and so even though when i'm with her i do feel a great sense of calm uh and peace that i i don't know i've ever felt like it's just such a warm and beautiful feeling Mm -hmm. but some days i look at the front page of the newspaper um and it seems like it's gonna end today you know (laughs) and so of
4: course of course
5: yeah um how do you like? Do you talk to your daughter about these big issues that are going on in the world, like climate change or the pandemic or even anxiety? Like mm. how how do I
4: navigate this? Yeah, and it's it is hard. <laughs> You've obviously heard of helicopter parenting; that's a very common term. But there's a new one I've heard called snowplow parenting, where you you just you just try to remove all challenges in front of them because you don't want them to walk through anything, which by the way, I completely get. I don't want my daughter to be in pain. I don't want her to have anxiety. I don't, want, I don't want to be challenged. I want to remove all challenges so that she has a very easy and smooth path. The fact is like you and I are who we are because of what we've been through. And so I have to, I want so bad to fix and be like, okay, this is how you can get around that challenge. This is how you can take this you know, shortcut. And it's like, no, I mean, I got to sit and listen and understand and allow her to walk through it. And that is really hard. It's really hard. How do you harness fun in spite of all the crap that's out there?
5: Like, wh- like, what has it done for you to find happiness or laughter even in these dark moments?
4: Yeah. I mean, this has obviously been a very challenging two years for so many people. But at the same time... I think it has it has forced me to slow down and even though it's been very frustrating like my daughter and I have kind of watched movies we try to move watch movies outside I don't know like we watch YouTube videos together and just I cannot it makes me laugh so hard there's these YouTube videos of like people um going on these roller coaster rides and screaming and her and I just like howl there's this one YouTube of it's really gross, but these have you seen that YouTube about the parents and if they're in the bathroom and they ask their kid to get them toilet paper and the kid comes in <laughs> comes in with toilet paper and then they they put Nutella on their arm <laughs> as they're walking away and then they're and then they're like, Oh my gosh, oh no. And these kids these kids are like oh, and they just absolutely lose it. It is the funniest <laughs> thing. I'll take that over any sitcom. And so like we just like try to find stuff like that and laugh. Did you play a lot of music for your daughter when she was growing up? Yeah, we did, and we we always loved when she was little. Oh, I miss those times. We little we would always go to those um, play spaces and with other parents, and you'd sit around a circle and you'd sing the songs. And when I was YouTubing Rafi last night, just those kids in that kind of five to six range where they don't give any crap about what people think of them or if it's cool. Or anything like that, and they just fully engage, and then he engages back. It's that age is a really, really beautiful age.
5: It's so cool. We just actually started taking my daughter to a music class on Monday mornings, and um, as soon as um, you know the teacher or the musician starts playing, like she goes bonkers, and it's like so free. She she's not self conscious at all. She starts like wiggling and throwing your arms up. And it's such a beautiful and pure
4: thing um, to watch. Yeah. And it, it actually it actually switches now. My daughter's 15, so now I do all those actions, and she's humiliated by me. <laughs> it just, like, it, I was never humiliated by my child when she was young, but now I'm, like, the freak, and she's like, you really need to just settle down.
5: I couldn't let Tony go without getting his take on Banana Phone. I just want to sit here and listen to Raffi's song "Banana Phone" with you.
1: Ring, 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 banana phone.
4: Ring, oh, ring, I love that ring, so much. Ring, 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 Do you know what I love about what he's doing? Is he's giving permission to these kids you know everybody looks at a banana and wants to pick up the banana and go hey hello like it's just kind of it, it, it's just a common thing but it, it gives a child permission to be silly a child permission to kind of think beyond kind of whatever their present narrative is and it's like man that is such a gift i think to so many people we all need it
1: don't need computer or tv to have for pizza, I'll call my cat, I'll call the White House, have a chat. i place a call around the world, operator, get me Beijing, jing,
5: Over the past months, I've spoken to Rafi a lot. And more than just a few times, he showed me his playful side, cracking jokes and just playing around.
1: You know, long before the uh, iPhone, there was the B phone. You know, the banana phone predated the iPhone by many years. And it's still going strong, and it hasn't been reinvented. It's uh, a pocket cellular, if you will.
5: (laughs) At first, I thought it was his way of breaking the ice and dealing with the awkwardness of being interviewed. Then I wondered if it was his way of deflecting a question he didn't want to answer. But now, I see it as his mission, like he chose to be playful as a way to survive. Maybe it's how he deals with his strict upbringing, his divorce, or as an escape from witnessing a dying planet.
1: It's amazing the amount of play that has been in my songs, overtly. I sometimes listen to my old stuff, and I go, Raffi, you dog, look at what you did, man. (laughs) I just kind of, you know, I really went for it at every point. I just, yeah, baby. (laughs) So... You know, it's just my way of enjoying every single day. Joy is not something to be postponed. Ever.
5: I love a great comeback story.
1: Play is a way of life, really. It's an intelligence and a way of life. And I actually think um, that as we grow older, we're not meant to lose play. I think we're actually meant to deepen our faculties in it. Next time on Finding Rafi. You know, are you only just going to remember me for my six little ducks and apples and bananas and baby beluga? Are you going to look at my second career, my child honoring work? What about my 30 years as a climate activist? Will you take a look at all this music and advocacy activism? Will you see the coherence in it? The earth and child link.
5: Finding Raffi is a production of iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch. It's produced by Catherine Fenelosa, Meredith Honig, and James Trout. Production assistance from Charlotte Livingston. Alex French is our story consultant. Our senior producer is Andrea Suaje. Emily Foreman is our editor. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Raffi's music is courtesy of Troubadour Music. Special thanks to Kim Layton at Troubadour. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch, Ty Trimble, Mike Rothman, and Jeff Eisenman at Fatherly, and me, Chris Garcia. Thank you for listening. Your name is probably the most fun, friendly name you can have.
4: (laughs)
0: Because it rhymes with Daffy. (laughs) That could be it.